starting in verse 1 of Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Father, we ask that you would help us as we study this text, that you would increase our passion for the lost. God, I pray that you would help me to communicate your word, not merely my ideas, that you would open your hearts to be receptive to your truth today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. This morning I want to preach to you on these verses, and I'm going to tag my sermon, Love the Lost. Love the Lost. On Sunday, March 6th, 1881, there was a ship that was wrecked off the north coast of Scotland. Fishermen made several attempts to try to rescue the sailors on board, but the wind was too strong. They finally took a rope and was able to connect the rope to the ship and extend the rope to the the shore, and on the rope they attached an empty barrel, which would be a traveling cage, to try to rescue the sailors one at a time. The first out of 11 sailors was rescued as he was put into the traveling apparatus, and they were able to, a few minutes later, pull him safely into the hands of his friends. But he just barely was saved. As soon as he got to land, the wind blew and the ship was blown into the rocks and the, the traveling apparatus, this cage that they had made, uh, got tangled in the rocks and it was unmanageable. Freaking out, one man tried to save himself and he jumped overboard, grabbed onto the rope that was extending to the shoreline and he tried one hand after another to climb across this rope, but the waves were too much, and after only a few moments, the waves crashing down on him like houses, they said, uh, overwhelmed him, and he was swept away to sea. As soon as he was lost, the wind blew again, and the ship was moved, and the apparatus became workable again. And they were able to, one at a time, bring the rest of the sailors to safety through the barrel into the hands of their friends. All were saved except this one. The captain, when he was asked about the one that was lost at sea, said this, We tried to persuade him not to attempt such a useless task, as it would be impossible to reach the shore in that way but he would not listen to us. A fine fellow he was, added the captain, 
the best man on the crew. But he was lost because he tried to save himself in his own way. Yeah, all the others were saved, but they were saved by the hands of another. He tried to save himself in his own way. We sought to persuade him against it, but he tried to save himself in his own way. Friends, do you know that human powers are totally inadequate for salvation? If you try to save yourself in your own way, you are setting yourself up for spiritual disaster. And you know lost people, maybe in this room or all around you, who are trying to save themselves in their own way. And they are heading to their own disaster. And it is up to us to seek to persuade them. Here in Romans chapter 9, Paul, in these five verses, has clear concern for his fellow Jews, who are, according to the context, seeking to save themselves through the following of their own traditions, the following of the law, the following of their own customs, and Paul sees them heading toward spiritual disaster. And what I see emanating through this text, and I think you might have seen it too as it was read this morning, is that Paul loves the lost. And you should too. We should too. Look, you don't want to live your life in a Christian bubble and become happy and satisfied with being a recipient of God's grace and care less about the lost. You don't want to live in a Christian bubble and become so satisfied with all of the gifts that God has given you and lose a sense of passion for the lost. It's as if we move from gospel grace to gospel entitlement. As we, over time, begin to think, no, I actually kind of deserve this. And they don't. I'm actually a recipient uh, because I've done so well believing and studying and knowing the gospel and reading systematic theology and listening to 150 sermons online, and, 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 and I'm, I'm actually entitled to these things of God. And we begin to just look at others as lost. They're merely lost. And we forget that we one, at one time were lost. We forget that we were the ones under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God. And if it were not for the Lord on our side, where would we be? But I don't know about you, but I heard about the gospel not through Jesus Christ incarnate in the flesh. Uh, I haven't physically met Jesus. I've met him spiritually, but not physically. Do you know how I heard about Jesus? It was through my mother and my father and my grandfather and a whole bunch of other people. How will they hear if you don't tell them? That's where we're going in Romans. And Paul starts that right here with his anguish for those who are under the wrath of God, for those who are under the judgment of God. Love. 
for the lost. Three directives I want to give you from this text to encourage you to be like Jesus in this way. Number one, show them gospel love. Number, number two, show them gospel truth. And number three, show them gospel hope. First, show them gospel love. As we think about the flow of Romans here, some scholars, I think wrongly, believe that Romans chapter 9 through 11 is disconnected from the rest of Romans, as if uh, Paul had this sermon that he was preaching around and, and it somehow got stuck right into the middle of the book because they say that Romans 1 through 8 doesn't really fit with Romans 9 through 11 because Romans 9 through 11 is all about Israel and the Jews and the eternal state of the Jews. Romans 1 through 8 was, as we've been studying, about what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I think they're wrong, and I think Romans 8 and 9 perfectly blend together. As a matter of fact, I don't think we can understand Romans 9 through 11 as we look at Israel and the, the fate of Israel without understanding Romans 1 through 8. So Romans 1 through 8 has shown us, and I won't walk through the whole thing, but he's shown us the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and he's been expounding the gospel the whole way up until the end of Romans 8, where Paul clearly says that all things work together for your good. You can trust God, saint, with all things. He's, you've got the Holy Spirit of God that is renewing you and alive and active in your life, and nothing can separate you from God's love. Now, with that, from that, he turns now to a new question. And the question is this, if we are not saved by following the law, the customs, the traditions, if we are not saved by being a Jew, if God's new people includes both Jews and Gentiles, what does that mean for Israel? What does that mean for the Jews? That's where Paul's turning right now. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at that. What does this mean for Israel? What does this mean for the Jews? But it's also very practical for us today because we see in Paul's heart for the Jews, his brothers, we see a heart that we ought to have as well. Gospel love that we ought to be able to show our lost friends. What do we see here? First, I see that Paul loves them with grief. And so should you. There should be a sense of anguish in your soul as you think about the lost that you love. There should be a sense of grief that you have as you consider the fact that they are under the judgment of God. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. There is no doubt that Paul loves his brothers. Some suggest that Paul was accused of being anti-Jewish. And I think that might be right. I think Paul probably had a good bit of accusations against him from the Jewish community at the time saying, hey, you're abandoning the customs. You're abandoning, abandoning the law. You must hate Jews. Well, let's remember Paul was a Jew ethnically, so he wouldn't be like anti-Semitic as we would think of today. Uh, that wouldn't have been the claim. But he certainly would have been uh, uh, accused of hating his own brothers. Does that make sense? And I think Paul is saying that's a farce. That is not true. 
I actually love my brothers. He emphasizes this three times. He says, number one, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Number two, I am not lying. Number three, the Holy Spirit testifies to my soul, my conscience, that I'm telling you the truth. Listen, in God's inspired word that lasts forever. I mean, remember, this is Paul's writing, but the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write something that is God's very revealed word for you today. In God's inspired, inerrant word, God has shown us Paul's anguish for the lost, his love for the lost. Why? It's because God wants us to love the lost. If you need more proof, let me put it this way. God has revealed his own heart for the lost, and it is that of love. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is, slow, is, is, is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Indeed, he is patient with you. Listen to this. Not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. question that we often get is, man, why doesn't Jesus just come back? Why doesn't he come back and just set up the kingdom and get rid of all injustice and wickedness and wrongness? Why is God being so patient with sinners? Well, it's because that's the heart of God. God is a patient God. And if he wasn't a patient God, none of us would be sitting here today. He is a patient God, and we thank him for his patience. Why is he patient? It's because it's not his desire that anyone should perish. But rather, everyone would come to repentance. The heart of God. In Luke 19, Jesus himself weeps over the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Who's in control of all things? It's a simple answer. Feel free to be wrong if you'd like. God. Christ is God. The omnipotent God. Christ who has prophesied judgment on Jerusalem. Christ who is, is being rejected by Jerusalem. What does he do when he looks at the city and recalls his own judgment that is coming on Jerusalem. It brings him to tears. See, the, God, God doesn't take delight in judgment. And we are called to emulate the heart of Christ, to have the heart of Christ, which Paul has. And that is, that is grief as we think about those that you love that are under the wrath of God. That are, under, that, are, that are under the, the looming judgment because of their sins. This is not the Apostle Paul versus God, but this is God-inspired grief. Paul loves them with grief. Paul also loves them sacrificially. Look at verse 3. He says, For I, I, I could wish... wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ 
for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 3 here defines his anguish in verse 1 and 2. What we see in verse 3 is that he has anguish because his brothers are damned. They are accursed. They are cut off. That word is anathema. That is condemnation. It means to be damned. I don't know if your mother ever said, don't say damn. But it's simply because some things are too real to take, to take lightly. It's too weighty. It's, it's too heavy. And as Paul thinks about damnation, as he thinks about the fact that his brothers are cursed, it brings him anguish. Now, I, I say that Paul loves sacrificially because what, what do we see here? Paul says, I, I could wish that I myself would be cut off in your place, in your stead. Now, let's just try to think about this for a second. Paul, who loves the idea of heaven, who just in Romans 8 said his, our hope is in the glories that are to come, the unveiling of the adopted sons of God, and I would give it up so that you might be saved? Now, clearly, it's impossible for that to happen. Paul has already said in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So he cannot take the place of his brothers in this sense. The, the theoretical question, would you spend eternity in hell so that your mother could go to heaven, so that your brother could go to heaven? Well, that, that's, that, that's, that is an illogical question. It's not really a question that we are ever asked to consider. It's impossible. So don't consider that as a question. <laughs> Paul is not saying here that he loves his brothers more than Jesus. You know, clearly, Paul loves Christ more than anything. Paul loves Christ supremely, even more than he loves his Jewish brothers. And for Paul to literally be saying, I wish I could be cut off from Christ, is to say that I wish I did not have love for Christ. That's not what Paul is saying. So what is he saying here? Well, Paul is using hyperbole. He's, using, he's making a point here about how great his anguish is, and it's so great that he will hyperbolically sacrifice himself if he could to see his brothers come to know Christ. That's sacrificial love. I think Paul most definitely has Moses in mind. In Exodus chapter 32, you know the passage where, the story at least, where uh, the, the Israelites in the wilderness, they build a golden calf. You know where Moses is at at the time of the building of the golden, golden calf? He's up on Mount Sinai, receiving the law of God. And he comes down the mountain and he sees the golden calf and, he, he, and, and, he, and he, he sees just the, the, the wickedness and the idolatry as the people have so quickly turned against God. And then God says to Moses, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to destroy them. Moses, I think it's one of the most beautiful prayers. It's probably the most beautiful prayer Moses prays. In chapter 32 of Exodus, Moses pleads with God and he, and, and he prays, but now God, please forgive their sin. But if not, 
Listen to this. Then blot me out of the book you have written. Blot me out and save them, God. Let me be accursed and save my brother, save my mother. That's the kind of love that Paul has. It's the kind of love that Moses had. It's the kind of love that we have for the lost. It's sacrificial love. And saints, it should at least mean that we give some of our time to share the gospel with our lost loved ones. I mean, this kind of sacrificial love, what it does is it drives us to do something. It drives us to act on their behalf. Do the lost know that you love them? Paul wants the lost to know. He knew that everybody would be reading this book. He's writing knowing that they're going to be reading it. He wants them to know his love for them. Do the lost know that you love them? Or maybe we could go deeper. Do you love the lost? Do you have this kind of love? The Jews, I should say this, the Jews were not Paul's friends here. Uh, from everything that we know, Jews in Rome did not like Paul. In every city that he went, uh, there, were, there were groups of Jews that were trying to trip him up. They were sending in spies into the, their churches to try to find accusations against them, to try to persecute them and shut them down. Uh, they were trying to twist what Paul would teach uh, and teach something else. Uh, they were sending in false teachers. These are not like Paul's homeboys on the street. All right, when he says, these are my brothers, that's not the way you would use the word brother. He's not, he's not talking about your friends who you call brother. And he's not necessarily even talking about his flesh brothers. He's talking about his enemies. He has this kind of love for his enemies. How? Like, how can we grow in our love for the lost? Well, I think, number one, I think Paul actually believed in hell. I think he actually believed that he's talking to somebody who currently is experiencing the common grace of God as they're breathing, living, there's an element of beauty in them, they're made in the image of God, and that there is quickly coming a time where they will be standing before the, 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 this, this infinitely holy God and be forever judged in hell. And I think one of the reasons we don't really love the lost and feel that kind of love is because we don't really believe in hell. We think maybe it'll get worked out somehow. That's too much to think about. I, I can't think about the judgment of God on somebody for all of eternity, just for rejecting Jesus? I mean, if you don't believe that, you don't believe major teachings in the Bible. And so, yes, you check off the box and you say you believe that, but, but do you really believe that? Do we really believe that the, love, the, the, the people that we love who don't know Christ, including the people that we don't like, including people that don't like us, that we are right now, that we are right now standing between them and an eternity in hell. 
how will they know if we don't tell them? Secondly, I think Paul really believed that Christ was worth it. We never see Paul motivated just by a fear of hell. He's always motivated by the glories of Christ. You know, the the, the thing is for Paul, I, I think even the fear of hell isn't about me as an individual. It's about Christ. It's about the fact that an image bearer of God is not giving God what God is due. An image bearer of God is not worshiping God for all of eternity with me. And Christ at the very center of that worship. Paul believed that Christ was worth it. And we know, we know that Christ is worth it. And we know that Paul knew that Christ was worth it. And so therefore he had love. Application, saints, love the lost with sacrificial love. Love, show them gospel love. Secondly, show them gospel truth. Show them gospel truth. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the reading of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Man, Paul doesn't shrink from the truth, does he? He's saying, they had it. They had it. This is all that they had. I was talking to Eric over the weekend about him playing with Carmelo Anthony uh, as, a, as, a, as a youth. And uh, he played on the same team for a season, played against him for a number of seasons. Um, and then Carmelo Anthony, uh, for those of you that are uh, not blessed enough to care about the NBA, <laughs> he's, a, uh, he's a basketball player, all right? He's made a lot of money in the National Basketball Association. And I asked Eric, and I don't know if this is an okay question, but I ask it anyway because I feel like I would have. I said, did you ever, like, when you're, like, 18, 19, 20, do you ever, like, feel just jealous? That's how I would have felt. You know, you're playing with these guys, and then you see them rise up and go off, and, like, why am I not there with them, you know? And he's like, yeah. He said, but you know what really bothered me? was the, the guys who were super tall. By the way, Eric never made it to six foot, you know. <laughs> and uh, the guy, he said the guys that were super tall, you know, six, 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 eight, six, nine, seven foot, the guys that were huge and had all the training and had all the opportunities and they didn't do anything with it. Man, you were seven feet tall. You had the best coach in the world. Like we were, you were playing on the same team with Carmelo Anthony. And you missed it. Now, in a much more serious way, this is what Paul is feeling about his fellow brother Jews. He's saying they've had everything. They've had every opportunity. And they missed it. Maybe you are someone who's had every opportunity and up until this moment you've missed it. Don't miss it. 
I've always been struck by the story that Charles Spurgeon tells of when he was a child. He, he says that uh, his mother would, would gather him and his brothers and sisters around the table, and, and she would, every Sunday evening, she would uh, take the Bible and read a passage, and then she would verse by verse explain the passage to her children. And he said then, after they were done, she would uh, close the Bible, and she would plead with them to accept Christ. And then after her plea, she would pray. And he said every prayer was similar, and he remembered one prayer that particularly haunted him, and they were similar to most of the prayers that she prayed for her children. Listen to this prayer. Charles Spurgeon's mother at dinner with her children. Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. Whoo! Man, imagine if your mother prayed that prayer. Maybe you would have been converted younger. I don't know. But for Charles, he said, this, would, this, this kept him up. Hearing his mother say that she would testify against him on that day. Lord, I, I gave him the gospel. I shared everything with him. He had every opportunity, and he never laid hold of the gospel. I'll testify against you, she says. She wasn't happy to say that. It was anguish. And this is, this is like the heart of Paul here. Paul is saying you, you've had every opportunity. You've had every gift. And you haven't laid hold, laid hold of Jesus Christ. He says they were Israel. Notice he calls them Israelites here in chapter 9. This is one of the reasons people think chapter 9 is disconnected from chapter 1 through 8 because Paul has been calling them Jews the entire time. And now we get to chapter 9 and he calls them Israelites. Well, what Paul is doing is he's evoking this covenantal name for them. Jews became the popular name that they were called, but the biblical name in the Old Testament was Israelites. And so he's reminding them, you know, you're not just Jews, you're Israelites. You're recipients of all of these opportunities. What have they had? To them belong, he says, verse 4, the adoption and the glory. Meaning God called Israel his own son, the son of God. It was always looking forward to the son that would come that Christmas day. I know Jesus wasn't born on Christmas day. You know what I mean. The son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. He's pointing us directly to Christ. To them belong the adoption of sons and the glory of God. To, to them belong the covenants and the law. Yahweh had made covenants with Israel and through Israel. Some for Israel and some that would be very global in nature. He made a covenant with Noah that was global, like a, Come in grace. I'm not going to destroy the earth again like this. There's, there's this patience uh, that we see in the covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham that he's going to globally bless the whole world through the seed of Abraham. And somehow he's going to give him a great people and a great land. He made a covenant through Moses. And the, the, through this covenant, they would inherit the land. They would receive the land. They would enter into the land, and they would stay in the land. And the sign of this covenant was the giving of the law. 
They were given a law, and if they obeyed God, they would, re, they would remain in the land. God gave a covenant to David on his throne. There's going to be a king that is called everlasting, who lives and reigns forever, pointing us to that king of kings that was born to sit on the throne of David. To Jeremiah, an Israelite, he gave a prophecy, a glimpse, a picture of the new covenant that is to come, in which God is going to rewrite our hearts, and it's going to go global. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which lead him right to the greatest of all, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Look what he says there in verse 5. To them belong Christ. He's Jewish. He's an Israelite. He's of them, uh, of their own race. Physically, he says, according to their own race. Who is God over all? Does the Bible ever say that Jesus is God? Yes. And here's an example. To them belong Christ, who is God over all. He's taking us straight to the divinity of Christ to show them, to speak the truth of all that they've had. You've had God take on your flesh, your race, and you're missing it. You're rejecting him. Jesus is God. Can we just pause there for a second? When we think about the Christmas season and we hear about the birth of Christ, we're talking about God taking on human flesh permanently, becoming fully human. God in Christ, Jesus is as human as he is God. Think about that. So that he might represent us before God as the representative human, so that he might die for us, so that we might live, so that he might be raised for us, so that we might be raised and walk in the newness of life now, spiritually and one day physically raised. Turn from your sins. Trust in Him. You're saved by grace because God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Come to Christ. And come to Christ as God. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Come, let us adore him. Christ, the Lord. The Jews have outright rejected Christ. And Paul doesn't shrink from, he doesn't shrink from one, love. And he also doesn't shrink from telling them the truth. Don't you understand that love and telling somebody the truth are not polar opposites? But they go hand in hand. If you love the lost, you're going to tell the lost the truth. That Christ is God over all. In the same way. 
Saints, tell them the whole truth. In your evangelism, speak the whole gospel. All right, not a part of it. God is love. That's part of the gospel, but that's not the whole gospel. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. That's part of the gospel. That is very core to the gospel. That is not the whole gospel. They don't know why Jesus had to die for their sins on the cross. They don't know who Jesus is. Which Jesus are you talking about? Jesus is my homeboy Jesus? South Park Jesus? Like what Jesus are we talking about? No, we've got to tell them the whole gospel. We've got we've to take them to the holiness of God. I believe that one of our challenges in evangelism is that we don't confront people with the holiness of God and with God's law. You know, there's got to come a moment in somebody's life where they reach a crisis, where they cry out, what must I do to be saved? Where they realize that they are forever shut out of heaven, that there is no hope for their soul. And only then are they at the brink of salvation. Isn't that ironic? Like sometimes you got to look somebody in the face and say, according to the Bible, you are not a Christian. And you cannot go to heaven. Like there's got to be this moment of crisis in telling, you know, we, we, we tell people, hey, have faith in Jesus. Come to Christ. But they will never be ready to respond to a Savior that they don't know they need. You see, this is the challenge when you're thinking about those that you have relationships with, those that are lost, and you think to yourself like, you know, I haven't shared the gospel with them yet. You know, I've been kind of building this relationship and I've got some rapport with them, but I've never actually shared the gospel with them because I don't think they're ready. They're not going to be ready until you share the gospel and bring them to this crisis moment. And by the way, the Bible never says that you have to have relational capital to share the gospel with somebody. I mean, feel free. I think it's a great strategy. Build some relational capital. Don't be a jerk, all right? Don't be a stumbling block to the gospel. Like, if, if you and your evangelism are jerkish, and, and, and you're just mean, mean-spirited, and you actually, you know, somebody's like, man, my mom died, and you're like, all right, that's, I heard you say that, but you got to believe in, you know, like, okay, let's slow down. Let's empathize. Let's, let's learn to love somebody. Build that capital. I'm just saying this. There are some saints today who are forever building relational capital with somebody, and that person is going to go to hell before you build a strong enough relationship to share the gospel with them. It's just straight up. That's, that's real. There's an urgency to this. Nobody is promised tomorrow. Nobody is promised to get to bed tonight. There's an urgency. Meaning sacrificial kind of love. Share the whole truth with them. In a winsome way. Do it with a smile, but do it with urgency. Believe it. Believe what you share, and it will come across in the way that you intend for it to come across. I almost feel like I should take some questions right now. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> All right, third, show them gospel hope. 
So as we're sharing the whole truth, what do we do? We're taking them to Christ. This is what Paul does. You can't mention Christ without talking about hope. Show them, saints, gospel hope. Paul is himself not without hope. This, this to me, as I've been studying this text, was quite mind-blowing. I don't know, I'm, I'm slow and I'm simple, and it just takes me a while to see things in the Bible, all right? Romans chapter 9, Paul's heart for the law, his, not, not just his heart, his anguish that his brothers are damned. And we're going to get into the question of election and all these different things that Paul gets into to try to wrap his mind around this. But Romans 9 culminates in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, which reads, Brothers, my heart, desire, and prayer for them is that they may be saved. Can you guys catch that with me in a fresh way? Paul is saying they are cursed. They are under judgment. They're going to hell. I wish I could trade places with them. But he is not without hope. The gospel sadness, or I should say the, um, let me just put it this way, Paul's sadness of Romans 9 leads to Paul's hopefulness in Romans 10. That they might be saved. That they might be saved. And then he gets into verse 14 and 15 of Romans chapter 10. He says, how will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent out? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul is saying, look, I want to tell you, church in Rome, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to tell you how much anguish I have for my fellow Jews in Rome. I don't want you to hate them either. I want you to love them. And I'm in anguish for them because they're under the judgment of God. Please, somebody go tell them. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's the heart of Romans 9. It's evangelism. It's a call for us to love and to go. If I could apply this in two ways, two little handles for you. Number one, know the lost. Know who they are. Get to know them. And number two, tell them. Tell them the whole truth of the gospel and call them to repent and believe as you tell them. Go after the lost. You know, think of it like this. In those two phases, we've got to figure out ways to get us into meaningful relationships with lost people. You know, this, this could look like um, the 1012 ministry that Montrell and, and others are part of, um, uh, volunteering with youth football through 1012 sports. Uh, this could look like a, an intentional small group. You know, we as elders, we want to empower you to start small groups. And one of those ways that you could think about is evangelism. Like, what if there was a, a group of, uh, I don't know, mothers that got together once a week and went to the playground and let their kids play while they try to engage with other mothers? What a great small group that would be, you know? Like, what are intentional ways that we can try to get to know lost people? Um, one thing I would like to do is uh, get back to some Saturday outreach that we used to do. I want to get some donuts and some hot chocolate and coffee and go to some busy blocks in our neighborhood and set up shop and charge a lot of money for it and make a lot of money. No, <laughs> give it away for free and try to engage people 
try to engage people with the gospel message. So here's the thing. We've got to be intentional and find ways, strategic ways, to get to know lost people. But there's a big but here. He, Paul doesn't say how beautiful are the feet of those who know a lot of lost people. It's because that's some of our challenge as well. Is we've got all these relationships, but we don't do anything with them. How beautiful are the feet of those who do what? Preach the good news. So get to know folks, and number two, tell them. Tell them. Again, you can get strategic, all right? So one of the thing, one of the uh, resources that we've used as a church is called Christianity Explained. It's a little booklet that I'll buy for you if you want to get a group of people together and just walk through gospel truth with people. Just be intentional. Have people over for dinner or something. Think of ways to get people around the gospel message. Think of other strategies. What resources do you already know of? What, how was the gospel shared with you? You know, maybe learn from that experience so you can share with others. Uh, uh, think about reading the Bible one-on-one with somebody. The Gospel of John is a good place to start. Sit down with somebody. Let's walk through the Gospel of John once a week. What are ways that you can not only know people, but then once you know them, take that next step strategically into telling them and tell them the whole thing. It can be in one sitting, and it also can be over a period of time and give somebody time to grapple with these realities. Are you with me? Is your quietness right now, is it learning? Or is it, I'm checking out? Someone say learning. There we go. Be a gospel hustler. I have that written in my notes. Gospel hustlers have beautiful feet. It's said that Cyrus, who was the founder of the Persian Empire, once captured a prince and his family. And Cyrus brought, brought the prince and his family together in his courtroom. And Cyrus asked the prince, he said, what would you give me if I release you? And Cyrus, or I'm sorry, the prince exclaimed, half my wealth. Cyrus said, what would you give me if I released your children? And he said, everything I possess. He said, what would, I, what would you give me if, if, uh, if I released your wife? And he said, I would give you my majesty. I would give you myself. Cyrus was so moved by this that he released the whole family for free. As the prince and his family were walking back to their town, the prince exclaimed to his wife about the impressive stature of Cyrus, and his wife said, quote, I didn't notice. I could only keep my eyes on you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. I, I wonder if the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ has so captured your own eyes Like, I wonder if we can say that we are so captured with Christ that we really don't see anything else but Christ. And everything we see and everybody we see, we see through the lens of the one who would give himself for me. 
And as we take the gospel to others, and as we share the hope of the gospel, what we're doing is we're showing them who it was that loved them in this way. We're showing them who it was that would give himself for them. And it's the sacrificial love of Christ that compels people to love him back. Listen, the lost will never be compelled by you. The lost will never be compelled by the church. The lost will never ultimately be compelled by all of the great works of service and acts of love that we can do. The lost will be compelled by the story of Christ who hung and died for them. You see, Paul had sacrificial love that was shown for the people. He was willing. He said, I'd be accursed for them if I could. Moses had sacrificial love for his people. Before Moses went up on that mountain and, and prayed and pleaded with God, Moses looked at the people who had so sinned against God. He looked at them and he, he, said, he said, I will go back up into the mountain and I'll see what I can do. I'll plead, uh, plead with God on your behalf. And so as he goes back up on that mountain and he's pleading with God, blot me out and save them. The Lord's response is, I will blot out anybody who has sinned against me. You see, Moses could not be blotted out for the sake of his people. Paul could not be accursed for the sake of his people. But there was another who went up a mountain. There was another who was able to be blotted out for the sake of his people. There was another who was able to be cut off, to be cursed, to be condemned, to be damned for the sake of his people. And this one went up on Mount Calvary for you and I. And there as he hung on that old rugged cross, he died for us. Was it for my sin that he died? Oh, and can it be that I should gain from, from him? He was held for me, for my sin. This one has died for you. He is the sacrificial love. He is the compelling one. And so, my friends, let's point our friends to Christ who was blotted out so that we might be made whole. And three days later, he came back, rose from the dead. His name is not only written in the book, our name is written in the book. His name will be forever glorified and worshipped for all of eternity as the living Savior. His work is complete. How great a Savior He is. Amen? How wonderful is Christ. And how wonderful is our God who so loved the world that He sent His only Son and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would take His love to the lost. Help us to find ways to know those who need to hear the gospel and help us find ways to tell them the whole story of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.